March 28, 1985. Zazera residence. Vincent Zazera and Maxine Zazera were preparing for the night. Vincent thought it would be a good idea to catch up some TV before sleeping, but his wife had other ideas. She just wanted to get a good night's sleep. As he was sitting in the living room watching the TV, she slipped into a sleep in the bedroom. At the same time, around 2 a.m., a tall, lanky figure was stealthily moving across the grounds. He was trying to get into their house. He tried all the windows and doors without success. As he moved to the back side of the house, he saw a laundry window open and he got his chance to slip in. Removing his shoes, he moved slowly through the house, silently, like a shadow. He entered the living room. He saw the television on, blaring at full volume, and this man lying asleep in front of it, in the couch. Without a second thought, he pulled out his gun and shot him in the head. Maxine heard a shot from her bedroom. She was terrified. She saw this tall, lanky figure coming across the room towards her, like a shadow. She tried to escape, but she couldn't. The intruder tied her up and was trying to find out things to steal from the house. As he was busy finding valuables, she freed herself and got her hands on the late husband's shotgun. She aimed the gun at the intruder, thinking it would be all over. But as she pulled at the trigger, the clicking sound that came out of the gun sank her heart. Only if I had loaded it, the intruder turned around and shot her. He was furious. But he was still angry. Went into the kitchen, pulled the butcher's knife, came back to Maxine. He mutilated her body, pulled the eyes out of the eye socket. Feeling content, the night stalker slipped into the night as stealthily as he had come. Welcome to another episode of Writer and Geek Show and this time we are trying something different. We are starting a new series about serial killers. Sounds spooky, isn't it? So this is the first episode. I hope you all enjoy it. Of course, with your doors and windows closed. And oh, by the way, this episode is going to be a little gruesome in details and little explicit. So if you're not into that stuff, please don't listen to this. Remember we had uh, Reader's Digest uh, subscription during mid-2000s? Yeah, I remember. Yeah, there was a... In one of the editions, there was this feature on Anne Rule, the crime writer who wrote about serial killers and uh, stuff. So, um, it was through that uh, feature I came to know about serial killers and their existence. Mm. Prior to that, I used to think that, you know, murderers are there. I didn't know about the coin term called serial killers for people who have killed multiple people. So, uh, it featured a lot of people like Ted Bundy, uh, BTK, Gary Ridgeway. So, it was, I was actually intrigued by how people do such kind of things. The, 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 the their psychotic stuff which prompts them to do heinous crimes like this. So, uh, yeah, 
I wanted to know more about these kind of people just to know about their psychology and stuff. So a uh, few years later, probably three or four years later, I came across this book about serial killers. It was like a 200, 250 page book detailing uh, the crimes of around 50, 60 serial killers. I I got the book in the school library. It's unbelievable actually how it you know went through the censor of a school and they had a book about serial killers. Maybe it was someone's private uh, out collection. of someone's private collection and they just <laughs> left it in the library. I don't know, but the thing is it had things in such detail that I I would I would not prefer my kids to read when they are in ninth grade. But I was actually you know what uh, in. you know pretty much excited about reading it because after 2 3 2 after 2 3 years i got the opportunity to read such a thing uh, already knowing about ted bundy and uh, btk and gary ridgeway it actually didn't you know uh, matter for me reading about them but one of the you know person who stood out in the serial killer thing was richard ramirez hmm but um, my case is little different i do remember btk story from that uh, readers digest article but i have never heard of richard ramirez before we decided to make the series about <laughs> serial killers so when you mentioned richard ramirez i was clueless i went online i did some research past few days i've spent reading about him and watching some youtube videos and documentaries and stuff um i don't think i have read I mean I don't read too much of serial killer stuff because you know it's not my taste but um, because of the negativity <laughs> <laughs> but it seems to be interesting to talk about it in a podcast and you know it's a, it's an interesting topic but when I read about this guy I I, th- I had I mean this guy is really he has a very twisted mind and he he has done some really bad things uh, in his lifetime that's what I understood well why do you think out of the you know 60 serial killers in that book except the popular ones he is the only person i remember about mm. so yeah it had made that kind of Im- an impact in my mind okay so before uh, we get into all his stuff let's talk about his statistics in hmm. terms of killings and murders and stuff like that so he was convicted of 13 counts of murder 11 sexual assault 14 burglaries and 5 attempted murders These are all the stuff he's co- uh, convicted for, right? Yeah, these are the stuff that is that is known to the law enforcement. Yeah, so we don't know how many crimes he have committed, how many murders he have committed because uh, the first murder he committed on April uh, 1984, a 9-year-old kid was killed, brutally raped and killed in the basement of a hotel. So uh, he was connected to this crime only later on, not during the trials. I think that can be attributed to the fact that this was 1980s and the crime uh, solving technology was not uh, up to where we are right now. Even the fingerprinting database uh, had many restrictions like it was not computerized. So having ma- having to match someone's fingerprint with someone else's uh, you know some print that is obtained from a crime scene was not that easy as it is right, uh, now when we have the computerized database uh, yeah stuff. it said that they had only 6 million databases in uh, the la county yeah so and apart from the limitation of 6 million i think manual process of matching the fingerprints was yeah. a herculean task so uh, getting into the modus operandi he did not have uh, you know much of a motive to kill people he always targeted the male first then he sexually assault, assaulted the female 
then killed them and sometimes the motive used to be you know um, money because mm-hmm. he had to fuel his uh, substance uh, substance abuse habit and uh, yeah he used to choose houses which were dimly lit he used to go and like tap at every windows and doors and mm-hmm. see which one is open mm-hmm. and that's how we got into the house he specifically as you mentioned did not have any motive for con- committing his crimes uh, but this can be traced back to uh, his history his background from which he came and how he was brought up maybe that will give a little bit of insight into you know why he became the serial killer that he is so yeah he was born in el paso texas i think we'll remember it from breaking bad exactly that's <laughs> what came into my mind when where, i read about, read about ha- it the yeah, first time where hank schrader is sent and you know he returns uh, feeling all of scared for his life and stuff like that yeah so he was born in el paso texas um, he was a youngest son of uh, a family of five children right hmm. um his dad was a mexican national uh, who worked as a policeman earlier and once he migrated after getting married to his mom he came to us uh, he started working for uh, santa fe railroad uh, his mother worked in a, a factory which um, had all these toxic chemicals and stuff like that so i, I think because of that reason um, two of his brothers elder were, brothers yeah elder brothers were physically crippled disabled yeah they yeah. were disabled this ha- actually had an impact on him because uh, while in school he used to be the one who used to protect uh, his brothers from bullying and all kind of stuff and his father his uh, dad has a bad temper so he was quite abusive at times which did really affect him because he was it's it's not about him getting beaten up it was more about his brothers getting beaten up he was more worried about that the his dad's temper was so bad that you know he used to hit his own head with with hammer and <laughs> you know start bleeding and all that and uh, this uh, this boy richard got so scared of him that he used to spend nights sleeping in the cemetery nearby yeah <laughs> how can you not expect someone's son to be like this if the father is you know such a psychopath so please raise your kids with care man <laughs> yeah or don't have kids anyway after this he also had some traumatic accidents where he fell and you know he had some head injury which yeah. resulted in some epileptic seizures later on in yeah. his life uh, he he had fallen down uh, twice and hit his head like pretty hard so uh, even in schools like uh, the accounts of his uh, you know schoolmates classmates it used to be like suddenly he'll get epileptic seizures and they had to actually help him so the teachers and his friends and all his classmates knew what what they had to do mm-hmm. when he got this epileptic seizures but uh, it used to happen very rapidly but as he grew it reduced yeah so uh, it is said to be one other reason for you know that shaped his psychotic behavior yeah another turning point in his life uh, if i may call it a turning point was his association with his cousin miguel michael yeah mike yeah. miguel yeah so um this was around when he was 12 year old or something yeah yeah he's by the way he started smoking marijuana when he was 10 years old yeah that is with in association with this uh, so called cousin, cousin miguel yeah. so so miguel was a um, veteran of vietnam war yeah. and he had lot of gruesome stories of um, the cruelties that were done during the war times uh killing and uh, you know sexual assault on uh, vietnamese people and all that stuff and he had pictures pictures of them 
which he showed to this 12 year old boy uh, you know um uh, uh, narrating the stories of how people were killed and raped and all that stuff and this has a had a profound effect on his mind uh, he was still a child right so a ch- to for a child to take in all these things and see visually see all these uh, things on photograph was little too much for him to take see the thing was uh, what was seen through the pictures it gave him an idea that it's all natural you can actually do such stuff and get away with that yeah that is where his association of sexual fantasies uh, with torturing and, and killing killing uh, you know i think that is where it grew so his thought his idea about you know um sexual satisfaction was associated with murder uh, murder or you know some kind of brutality so that is this was this was formed during this time hmm. and it culminated with the with miguel murdering his wife yeah in front of him yeah in front of uh, ramirez he shot his wife on face so that that he was witness to that murder post that incident there was a very apparent change in him yeah and uh, over the years he started abusing with stuff substance from marijuana it went to cocaine heroin and stuff natural and, progression yeah and finally he ended up dropping out from college yeah and uh, miguel after he killed his wife he was uh, you know put in a mental Asylum. You know, mental asylum and uh, later on he was released so again when uh, ramirez he left high school their association began again mm-hmm. they started you know smoking you know not smoking i mean uh, taking cocaine and, cocaine and stuff. stuff again and uh, it was at this time he started working at this hotel and holiday inn. yeah holiday in so he used he had this habit of uh, i mean to fuel his uh, drug needs he used to have this master key of the rooms yeah he used to get into the rooms and steal stuff money and all that from the people who come and stay there he was also a peeping tom which uh, he shared with his brother in law they used to like go out together at nights and like look into houses to check out you know women undressing and stuff okay. so yeah getting back to the story so one night while getting into one of the rooms uh, he saw one of the occupants wife undressing and naturally he went there and he was watching so you know his fantasies took over him and uh, he tried to rape her while in the process the husband came back and he saw it happening and he just beat him beat him to like you know pulp mm. and uh, the case was registered but the thing was these uh, couple they were not from LA so they had to go back so if they wanted to like come and you know uh, witness be witness against uh, ramirez they had to come back again so they just dropped the charges because of the trouble they have to go through to uh, you know uh, convict him so after this incident um, he left el paso and he moved to la where it all started he didn't have a regular job he used to do a lit- uh, you know a little bit burglary here and there to buy drugs and uh, you know keep himself alive and this is where uh, he started with the serial murders in the year uh, 1984 so his first uh, murder as a night stalker was on june 28 1984 yeah. when he killed the 79 year old jenny winko who was found murdered in her apartment she was stabbed repeatedly when she was in bed and the throat was cut so deep that she was nearly decapitated hmm. his fingerprint was found but the problem was as we stated earlier there was no matching technology fingerprint matching technology uh, prominent at that time 
and i think uh, in los angeles the technology was just getting implemented so that's why it took you know almost a year uh, for them to identify who the killer actually was so this was the first murder that he uh, committed as a night wa- night stalker yeah and uh, speaking about him getting lucky so uh, the holiday the holiday in- incident there he escaped yeah. if he had been convicted he would have definitely been, gone to jail and probably all these things would have wouldn't have happened so the second time he got lucky was the fingerprint case if they had like the right technology and all that he would have been caught right then and there right anyway so uh, i think some of the few uh, like some of the murders which we should mention here are like on uh, 17th march uh, 1985 uh, maria hernandez she was a 22 year old she just uh, she was just coming back home and uh, richard ramirez was waiting for her and uh, he shot her while she was like uh, going to open the door and uh, what happened was she put her hands to her face right when he was shooting and she had her keys in her hand and the bullet it hit the key and reflected so she didn't die she was not hurt and she just lied, you know she just lied there she pretended to be she, dead yeah she pretended to be dead so thinking that she is dead he got inside the house and uh, her roommate who was uh, dial okazaki she heard the gunshot so she tried to hide herself behind the kitchen counter when richard got inside the kitchen okazaki tried to catch a glimpse of the person who was inside their house right when she peeked through the counter she was shot dead so that's one crime another one of his crime was uh, he got into the house of a 16 year old and uh, he tried to you know suffocate her by by strangling her with the phone cord so what happened was naturally it has electricity going through it it sparked so he thought it's a sign from jesus saying that she shouldn't be killed that night so what he did was he strangled her for a long time and just left there she actually ended up having a throat which was cut so deep that it needed like more than 400 stitches to you know <laughs> uh, close the laceration so this behavior was seen in him like uh, you know he got into you know satanism at the you know around that time in fact he was brought up as a devout catholic his mom was a strict catholic but somewhere along his childhood this all turned into you know uh, a fascination for satanism and he he thought that he he himself was doing the work of satan yeah it can be seen in uh, another murder episode which is uh, he got into the house of two elderly women and uh, killed them and had a pentagram drawn yes, on her thighs on her thighs and on, on their rooms yeah. too on the walls of the rooms you know uh, with their lipstick so that's another sign that he was into satanism and uh, during the interviews and everything when asking about you know uh, if he was a satanist he never gave a clear cut answer yeah and but but during his i remember seeing few of the videos during his trials trial, he yeah. used to call out hail satan and he had pentagram drawn on <laughs> yeah, his palms yeah that's one of you know that's one of the most iconic you know picture which is there of richard ramirez what led to the capture of richard ramirez so he got lucky a few times uh, when you consider the holiday in uh, incident and the fingerprint incident and one other crucial evidence which the cops were able to uh, collect was uh, shoe prints uh, 
So uh, there was th- there is this uh, brand of shoes called Avia. They had released a new new model like uh, during the beginning of the year 1985. So uh, at the same time, the cops collected a pair of shoe prints at one of the crime scenes, which was of the same model. Okay, so they went around the shops and checked where all they have sold the shoes. So in the entire LA County, there was only one store which sold one shoe. Mm-hmm. Okay. But they could not find out who bought the shoes because it was paid in cash. So he kind of got lucky a third time over there. And uh, and I think there was a little bit of stupidity from the side of authorities. Yeah. When uh, the San Francisco mayor uh, gave a press conference and announced all these uh, crucial details, crucial details uh, which were related to the investigation. And this guy was following the media as well. So he understood what was happening with the police investigations. He went to the Golden Gate Bridge and threw his shoes and his yeah. uh, gun down into the river. So that was a big mistake that was done uh, while the investigation was going on. There always comes a time when you can't escape karma. So in Ramirez's case, it happened in August 1985. Okay, so on August 24th, 1985, he traveled around 76 miles south of Los Angeles um, in a stolen car, which was a Toyota make. Yeah, orange Toyota. Yeah, he arrived at the home of one James Romero Jr. He was trying to break in when uh, his son, the 13-year-old James Romero, happened to be awake and he heard his footsteps outside the house. So he thought he's a prowler and he went up to wake up his uh, parents. So seeing this, uh, Ramirez actually fled the scene. But that's not actually him, right? Mostly he just <laughs> get inside and... I think this ca- in this case, probably he didn't have a gun with him. Maybe. So most of the cases, if you look at most of his killings, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what he does is he'll break into the house, um, directly go and shoot at the people who are mm-hmm. sleeping. Mostly he'll shoot the male... Men- yeah. Uh, who can probably, you know, uh, uh, resist, resi- offer some resistance or beat him down or something. He'll shoot the male, he'll kill them. He'll go and, you know, uh, do all the other stuff to the females. So in this case, probably he didn't have a gun with him or Maybe. we don't know what the reason is. He actually, I, I yeah. was actually surprised, uh, you know, seeing that. Anyway, he uh, he tried to flee uh, while fleeing uh, the son, the 13 year old uh, kid. He was able to, you know figure out what kind of make and which car and even get the partial, uh, you know, number plate. Don't you think that was quite an achievement by a 13-year-old Actually, kid? yeah. What others couldn't do it, you know, even the holiday in couple, they Seriously. could have just come back and did the same, you know, but yeah. So he was able to uh, provide this inform- this information to the cops and uh, that's when... And one thing I think we we have to mention here is that uh, Ramirez already had his fingerprints on the database because he was caught for some petty crimes uh, yeah. before he became the night stalker. Like traffic violations and substance yeah, abuse uh, and all. Carjacking and all that stuff. Yeah. So uh, so what happened after this was... Uh, so they found the stolen car. And in the stolen car, there was one crucial evidence which they were able to find from the rear view mirror. It was Ramirez's uh, fingerprints. Mm-hmm. So this time the technology had improved and they were able to run traces and they found it to be the, you know, fingerprint of some guy from Texas who had this, uh, you know, rap sheet for petty crimes. 
So finally, the Night Stalker got a face. Yes, exactly, and that's what the cops did. They 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 published it everywhere, you know, all over America. Yeah, I think this was the time around when he went to visit his brother uh, in Arizona. Yeah, he got into a Greyhound bus. Uh, and travel from LA all the way to Arizona. All this uh, was happening in LA when he was out of town. In fact, yeah. right? Yeah. So he was not aware of what happened in California. That you know his uh, picture is being circulated all around and all. So when he landed back in LA, is when uh, I think I, I he had no idea. Yeah, that a, he a, was in the news. Correct. LA authorities, the po- cops were uh, kind of looking around in all the bus stations and stuff. Um, so when he reached back to LA is when he saw his face best, uh, you know, posted all. Yeah. The See, s- the thing was, uh, he walked right past the, uh, past the cops who were standing there in the, you know, bus station. But mm-hmm. it was actually, you know, uh, one old couple who were able to identify. Yeah, I think old Mexican couple. Yeah. They and shouted they, out in Spanish. El Matador. Yeah. Yeah. The which, killer. Which means yeah. the killer. So that's when people started getting suspicious and they actually figured out that, yeah, this is the same guy. And he started, he tried to flee from there. He ran, he ran and he tried to carjack, uh, you know, again. But mm-hmm. the thing was the crowd, they just didn't leave him. I think there was a mob behind him who yeah. started to beat him up. Yeah. And he was hit by a rod on his head and he was finally captured okay. and put behind bars. Yeah, I think almost 40 police units were mobilized uh, at that moment to kind of capture him. Yeah, of course. So that was how he was captured. After he was captured, uh, you know, as usual, the trials started happening. But this guy had kind of a cult following by this time. Yeah. Um, You know, he had fans coming and sitting in the trials uh, just to see him. Um, He used to come wearing all these sunglasses and stuff like a rock star and all that. And during these trials, uh, he also uh, openly showed his belief in Satanism by having pentagram drawn in his uh, palm of his, his hands and openly shouting, Hail Satan and all that stuff. So I think this fascinated many girls. Uh, yeah, see, he used to get hundreds of fan mails, it seems. Yeah. And uh, he, when uh, the trial was going on, he would just raise his hands and show it to the you know crowd who was sitting behind. Mm-hmm. And they used to roar for him. Yeah. Think cheer about up, it. Cheering yeah. for him. Yeah, cheer. They used to like roar and cheer for him. I mean, this is nothing compared to uh, what one lady did. Yes. So this lady named uh, Doreen Loy, she wrote around like 75 letters to him within mm-hmm. a span of one year when he was in the jail. And it seems like this sparked up, you know, a romantic relationship. And they were actually married in 1996. 96, yeah. So it, it escapes me. How does this happen? Like, seriously? This is beyond my understanding that um, someone sh- would fall in love with the person who's done all these things in his life. I mean, yeah, it's it's a complex human mind, right? I mean, I saw a video where this lady is talking about all this. Blabbering. Man. She says that, you know, I, I don't know, she just says he's a hero or something like that. It's, she it's even said that uh, if he's ever, you know, uh, killed, you know. Yeah, he he's sentenced to death. Uh, so when she, I, I, they are separated now, they're yeah. not they they were not married before he died. So she said once that you know the the day that he would be uh, killed officially, she would commit suicide the same day. But yeah, so uh, the thing was, even if his sentence was to be taken place, it would be in his seventies. But uh, before that, he died. He died in the prison. 
yeah so he he contracted uh, lymphoma because of you know years of you know substance abuse and stuff he also had hepatitis c so because of all these complications he died in 2013 at the age of 53 i don't know man talking about his psychotic behavior and i i can't even understand what went through his mind while doing such crimes that is still a mystery because i saw a few of his interviews where they are actually asking him this question okay um like what was your motivation behind killing these people or what did you feel when you were doing it hmm. he just says no comments i mean he has he doesn't let out anything uh, i don't know if he is actually mentioned to anyone at all in his life yeah one thing which was you know prominent while the trials and everything were taking place uh, it was that he never showed an ounce of regret yes exactly. he was actually you know he kind of there was like, no remorse know, yeah. at all in his face he was kind of happy like he did all this and he he even used to taunt um, the relatives of the uh, murdered ah, people yes. while the trials were going on he used to look back at them and smile at them and all that when the uh, when the uh, you know jury sessions were going on i am very twisted mind i don't think we can ever understand what happened what happened inside his brain I think he has a lot of secrets that he carried to his grave which we might never know. I think so too. So that is the end of today's Right Rain Geek show. I hope you enjoyed this spooky and little scary episode. We'll be back with more such episodes if you like it. Do let us know in the comments um, whether you liked it or not and we'll see you soon. Bye.